an embarrassing confession to start us off. I used to go to Tate Modern and sit in one of the quiet rooms full of paintings for inspiration to write terrible brooding poetry, waiting to meet the love of my life. Assuming it would happen in this very moody and serious way. And I'd always get really annoyed by it, children running in, laughing and making fart noises. But actually, why isn't that also a completely valid response to art? Is it okay to laugh in galleries? I'm on a mission to find out if art can be purposefully funny. The Art of... Hello, I'm comedian Charlie George. Welcome to Tate's podcast, The Art of, a series telling the human stories behind works of art. In this episode, we're exploring the art of comedy! (laughs) Oh dear. My quest begins at Tate Modern. I just keep thinking of the word avocado, which is not helpful to me right now, and I wish my brain was more competent. (laughs) And no matter where in the world you go or what language you speak... Anything to do with our toilet habits seems to get a lot of us laughing. But it is quite a beautiful shape. It's got this really pristine finish. I'm with Helen O'Malley, assistant curator at Tate. It's quite uh, feminine, um, like really beautiful curves. It doesn't scream like a place where you would put your genitals. It could even be a fruit bowl, potentially, but you'd want to wash I mean, we're that moving fruit. into new territory now, yeah. <laughs> Although I'm not opposed to it. It's a piece that many of us will have seen unknowingly in our lives at some point. Kind of etched in our mind. Of a urinal. In a gallery? It's Fountain by Marcel Duchamp. Essentially it is a manufactured porcelain urinal that Duchamp has laid on its back. The replica, which is on display at Tate, is a glazed earthenware that was painted white. And the signature is reproduced in black paint in the bottom left corner. And it reads Ormut 1917. Who is Ormut? That's a tricky one because um, some people think that it was a pun on the German word uh, Armut, which means poverty. Also, some people think that maybe it was a reference to um, the JL Mott Ironworks Company, which was a really uh, well-known sanitary equipment manufacturer at the time. And there was also a cartoon strip at that time called um, Mutt and Jeff. And some people think that Duchamp was alluding to that. Did he make the original urinal himself? Well, the original, I suppose it was already made in that it was purchased from um, a company. He didn't hand make the urinal. But is the artwork the object itself or is it the idea? When he flips it onto its back, well, it's no longer functional in its traditional sense. It becomes something new. And when he gives it that new title, again, it transforms it into something. Even just his decision, you know, not to place it on the walls, but to place it on a plinth. Plinths are normally, you know, we see them in museums, galleries to kind of present very valuable, priceless artworks. So when he places the urinal on that plinth, you know, he's making a statement. Duchamp was a French artist, but he relocated to New York in 1915. And he was one of the founders of the Society of Independent Artists in New York, which was a new organization that was incredibly open and had a very democratic ethos. And they held an annual exhibition and all um, submissions were included in the exhibition. But it seems like Duchamp was maybe questioning whether 
the board members and the society itself were actually as open as they were suggesting. So he made the decision to submit an entry under a false name. And that was the fountain. That was the work that he submitted as a Ormut. But then after the exhibition, it was lost. So the only um, trace we have now is a photograph that was taken by Alfred uh, Stieglitz of the original. So in the 1960s, Duchamp issued a number of replicas that are in various public collections around the world. Oh, cool. What a great story behind it. Mm. What a cheeky nightmare. Like, basically, it's kind of like, oh, we're really open to anything. Well, I'm going to send you a toilet. What do you think about (laughs) that? Like, it's nice. That's kind of a nice statement, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty provocative as uh, artworks go. And I think he was definitely trying to push the boat out. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't shy in his approach. I wondered what you thought about whether or not he intended this to be funny and if you could tell us a bit more about the intentions of this artwork from the artist. I think he intended to cause a stir and he understood that humour or comedy could be a tool. He could use it to make his point. In 1964, in an interview, he said that he, you know, he chose the urinal in part because he thought it would be or would have the least chance of being liked. So, you know, he understood that contrast. He knew that it would cause a stir and he knew that it would cause a laugh. And I think he was trying to take that and seems to capitalise on it. So do we know if uh, it went well with the public when it was originally made? Like, what did people think of it? I mean, there were mixed reviews, but I mean, the key thing is that the public never got the opportunity to see it because the board was so appalled by the work, um, you know, following its submission that they made the decision to exclude it from the show. But it did cause a big stir. So there was a lot of press coverage and discussion following the opening of the show. So it lived on in a more conversational way. I wonder, like, what if they were just fine with it? You know, like that would have been a very different story. Absolutely. And again, I think that's why in the 60s he was so willing to create replicas. Because for him, you know, the original object isn't important. It's all about the conversations that it provoked and the conversation that it started. Yeah. Is it okay for people to laugh at it? Like if I saw this in a gallery, I think it would spark conversations about it. And if I was with a friend, let's be honest, say I was walking around the Tate, and I do this a lot, like if I see something, my first response would probably be to take the mickey. How appropriate is that? Is that its intended point is for people to actually laugh and have a response? I think so. I mean, art is so subjective. As far as I'm concerned, anything goes. But I completely take your point. I mean, there's a toilet in every home in Britain. So what makes this one so special? And again, I think the interesting thing about seeing the work in a gallery is that, uh, and, and this comes back to Duchamp again, because he decided exactly how to present it. But when he flipped it onto its back, you know, it's not immediately recognisable, I suppose. It takes a second for the penny to drop. So when you realise what you're actually looking at, the first thing to do is laugh. It's almost impossible to resist. I'm really interested because I used to do some performance work and I remember reading, not a great deal, but a bit about Dadaism. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about the phrase anti-art and that whole movement. Anti-art was a a phrase that, well, we believe Duchamp coined it around 1913 when he made his first ready-mades, which were artworks that were created from manufactured, mass-produced objects. But it's a term used to describe art that challenges the accepted, I suppose, definitions of arts. And it is associated with with Dada, which was a movement that took off in um, Zurich and simultaneously in New York around 1916. It was really a response at the time to capitalism, to nationalism, 
and even, you know, corrupt politics, which many artists believe led to the First World War. Politically, they were disenfranchised and they were using their work to kind of process those frustrations. They were questioning the establishment by abandoning all reason and logic because they felt like what was happening in the world politically was completely unreasonable. And the fountain, you know, it leans into that. And it's a difficult thing to do. You know, people, I think, overlook the power of humour within art, but it's really difficult to get the right balance. It's incredibly difficult to be that impactful. And he really manages to achieve that, I think, with the urinal. The humour is dark, you know, it's, it's dry, but it's incredibly powerful. It makes a real impression and it stays with you. You know, you go away asking, like, what is art? Really, what is it? Why can't the urinal be art? Although I remember needing the toilet quite often when I went to art galleries when I was a kid, one thing I don't remember seeing was work by women artists of colour on display. This is something, as a child looking for role models, I longed for, since I first discovered that my Pocahontas Barbie was in fact modelled on the face of Christy Turlington, a white model. Where were all the women of colour? The next two pieces we're looking at try to tackle this question. They're by the Gorilla Girls and are called Dearest Art Collector and the advantages of being a woman artist. Before I speak with another artist about the impact of them on her, here's Helen again. Well, the Gorilla Girls are an anonymous group of female artists who use their work to highlight sexism and racism within the art world. If art is a record of culture, and the art doesn't look like the culture, and the art is told only through the works of white males, that's basically what it is. It's the history of patriarchy, not the history of who we are. And this group, they actually wore gorilla masks. Like, can you tell us what the reasoning behind this was? The reason they wore the masks was, well, firstly, to protect their identities. But a better answer to your question is that they wanted to remain anonymous in order to keep the focus on the issues. There was discrimination right in front of people's noses, but they didn't see it. And it occurred to some of us that the art world was basically a white male place, and no one asked why. We don't know exactly how many members. The number 100 is a decent estimate, I suppose. Members have come and gone over the years. But um, two of the founding members are um, Frida Kahlo and uh, Kathy Kollwitz, or at least those are the pseudonyms. (laughs) And they're still active in the group. It was a lot of fun, especially when you're anonymous and you wear gorilla masks. As well as wearing the gorilla masks, the members also adopted pseudonyms of deceased artists or creatives. And they did that because they wanted, again, to highlight the work of women that had been overlooked in the past. The white male artist said, I can't tell my gallery what to show. And the gallerist said, I can't show women because their work doesn't sell. And then collectors would say, well, I can't buy women or artists of color because I don't see them. Everyone was passing the buck to someone else. There were many factors that led to their formation, but one of the really key events was an exhibition that was held at the Museum of Modern Art in New York in 1984. Out of close to 200 artists in the show, there were only 17 women and even fewer artists of colour. And they made the decision to stage a protest outside MoMA. You know, placards and chantings and a picket line. Unfortunately, the protest didn't really generate the traction or the awareness that they were hoping for. The only thing that we accomplished was to anger visitors to the museum. So at that point, they realised that if they wanted to draw attention to the inequalities, they really needed to adopt a different approach, a different strategy. Everyone was willing to excuse the art world. So we decided that day that we had to figure out a way 
to make people care. And the only thing you can do to a system that oppresses you is to make fun of it. So that was really when the group was born. We figured out this formula that if you make people laugh and if you use information, you can actually change people's minds. And one of the great things as well about their work is that it was completely data driven and it was research based. You know, at the beginning, especially they would conduct weenie counts, which was when you visited a gallery and you would physically count how many men, how many women, how many Asian artists, how many black I'm, artists. I'm sorry, that's called a weenie count. Yeah, that's the term. Wow. <laughs> we can I have just, a whole that... other podcast just about that. <laughs> Oof, goodness me. Yeah. Helen, could you tell us a bit about the piece Dearest Art Collector? Like, firstly, what it is and, like, what it says. Sure. I mean, the poster, it has a pink background and it's an enlarged handwritten letter. It reads, Dearest Art Collector, it has come to our attention that your collection, like most, does not contain enough arts by women. We know that you feel terrible about this and will rectify the situation immediately. All our love, Gorilla Girls. Hello. My name is Abundance Matanda. Abundance is an artist and writer who works with archives, museums and galleries, including Tate, through poetry commissions, creative research and community engagement. Her curiosity about inner city life, youth culture and empowering women means she loves the Gorilla Girls. Dearest Art Collector is a handwritten piece of work and I just love that personal touch. I like the tone of it where it addresses just a generic collector but still looks as if it's quite personal and there's something quite childlike about it. Yeah, that's what I liked about it. It's almost like as if a little girl had written, Dear Art Collector, why can I not see any women in the gallery, you know? I'm also a big fan of um, the sad flower at the top. There's just basically a flower with a sad face in it. (laughs) The reason they decided to create this very fluffy aesthetic is that at the time, you know, after their formation, they were called out, you know, the establishment was suggesting that they were angry, emotional, irrational women. And instead of backing away from that, they leaned into the stereotype. It's dripping in sarcasm, you know, it's all about what's being said between the lines. As like a member of the public, you're going to walk into a space and hope to have an intimate connection with the work that you're seeing. And Gorilla Girls are smart because they know that as a woman, as any kind of minority, you're going to just end up being quite underwhelmed by what you see a lot of the time. And so they sort of have faith that you will come across their work and feel like you're being spoken to. As someone who harnesses humour in your work, could you tell us about the power of humour to make a point? Yeah, definitely. Especially as an artist, I feel like people can be intimidated by the word art. And so humour just sort of levels the playing field. It's like I'm very much capable of being on your side and listening to things and taking things in from your perspective, which is something I like about Gorilla girls, like they're very conscious of not wanting to be a part of like the system and the market. Like they know how to use it to their advantage and leverage it. So another significant piece produced by the Gorilla Girls is the advantages of being a woman artist. It's a black and white poster and it begins with this very bold headline, the advantages of being a woman artist in caps. And then it follows with 13 ways that women are systematically excluded from exhibitions literature, textbooks. But one of my favourite points is actually the first one, um, which reads, 
working without the pressure of success. Something I have done for many, many years. <laughs> yeah, it definitely sets the tone for the rest of the points of the poster. My absolute favourite of the 13 points is not having to choke on those big cigars or paint in Italian suits. <laughs> Yeah, and from a comedic perspective, I think we talk a lot in stand-up comedy about imagery and the importance of, like, a really strong image creating a laugh, like, and, and combinations of words. And I think that definitely is one of the ones that is a really humorous highlight. Um, I really like not having to undergo the embarrassment of being called a genius. <laughs> but that's just because I like really sort of sarcastic things. That's kind of my favourite type of humour. What do you think of, like, the, the font and the look of it? The way they've signed it off on the bottom, I was just comparing it to Dearest Art Collector. And with that, it's just like really simple, you know, all I love Gorilla Girls. With this one, it's just a lot more formal. Like they've figured out their little branding thing. They've got their little tag. We are the conscience of the art world. They've got their address. They want people's money now. It's like they've sort of like leveled up. I think that's quite funny about it. Hey there, are you 16 to 25? Want £5 tickets to take exhibitions, free events, creative opportunities and special discounts? Join Tate Collective. The Art of Marginalised voices sometimes feel pressure to be serious in their art. But for me, it looks like the Gorilla Girls just wanted to take the piss. It just feels so empowering and bloody hilarious. But like I said at the start, one of the things that I want to know is, is it really okay to laugh in galleries? I'm James Finch. I'm assistant curator for 19th century British art at Tate Britain. Because of the prestige which is attached to art galleries and museums, it's easy to go into them and feel like you're walking into a, a sacred space or something and that you have this disembodied experience and you start behaving differently and you feel really inhibited. And I think it's important that people are encouraged not to feel like that and to feel that they can kind of react normally and they can engage with work just in a normal way. And a lot of work in art galleries is supposed to be funny and it would be um, really sad if people didn't feel that they were kind of legitimised to have that response. My name's Alice Proctor. I'm a museum educator and writer. I run a project called the Uncomfortable Art Tours, which are guided tours of different national galleries and collections. The easiest thing to forget when you're in an art space is that all of these objects were made to communicate with their original audience, whether that's to be funny or moving or sad or inspirational or anything like that. And we're very used to treating museum spaces like they should be quiet and reverent and sacred. But a lot of the work that we're looking at is never intended to be understood in that way. I definitely think you can laugh in art galleries. It's really important to give yourself the freedom to react. Alice, are there funny things that have happened on one of the tours that you've led in galleries? Probably the funniest thing that's happened is the number of times I've had people join one of my tours by accident and then end up in completely the wrong place. <laughs> I've had a couple of people come on tours with me and get about halfway around the gallery before they'll turn to me and say, this is fascinating, but aren't we supposed to be talking about British modernism? You're spending a lot of time on the 17th century. But honestly, the kind of purest example of humour in a gallery always comes from people noticing something that you'd never seen before. I did a tour once where someone wandered off and got lost from the group because they were so entranced by the way that this artist had painted a horse's bum that they stopped paying attention and we left them behind in the wrong gallery. 
so yeah people are always gonna do something weird (laughs) yeah it's a tricky one isn't it because i think it might depend on the artist's intentions that's katie one an assistant curator at tate modern yeah i know another one well it's a big place isn't it I guess if there were very sombre works in the gallery that someone was laughing at, then (laughs) I might question what exactly it was they were laughing at. But gallery spaces are places to come together and to share experiences. So I think humour can be a really good connecting point. I'm speaking with Katie to essentially make me feel clever so I can impress my mates who are into art. She's about to talk me through the artwork, View From Here to Eternity by Misami Teraoka, which uses comedy to highlight distinctions between different cultures and eras in art. So Misami Teraoka is a Japanese-born American artist. Um, He has lived in Hawaii since 1980. He was born in Onomichi in 1936. And his works are, especially his early works, are often satirical. And they combine the stylistic influences of Japanese woodblock printing also known as ukiyo-e, and American pop art. The View From Here to Eternity is a large work on paper, and what we see in front of us is two figures emerging from waves crashing onto a rocky coastline. So on the left-hand side, we see a man whose face is stylized to look like the Edo-era prints of samurai and kabuki actors, except he's removing a plastic snorkeling mask from his face. So that tells us it's kind of more in the present day. And you can't help but follow the direction of his eyes, which are very firmly planted on the backside of the female figure on the right-hand side. And although you can only see a small part of her face, uh, we can infer from her blonde hair that she is of European descent. In the foreground, um, I don't know if you can see that the white surf kind of like almost curls around Mm. like fingers. And Tara Oka has spoken about how he kind of very deliberately kind of makes them look like they're caressing, which obviously when you see the waves against the the backside of the woman, I think gives it an added, kind of an added sexualized meaning. So it's much kinkier and saucier than we think. And also I should point out that she's wearing like a very stylish swimsuit, one in which I would like to find out where she purchased it. But it's <laughs> it's got like a big um, gap in the back. I don't even know how to describe that, Katie. How would you describe a sort of backless I th- I but still... like a backless swimsuit. Yeah, but it looks like it might join at the top in some sort of stylish European way. I love um, that you're getting fashion inspo from this print. Well, yeah, I mean, anything that's set at the beach, I just think, what can help me with the social awkwardness of the beach and how horrible I feel being there? Um, but actually, when you look at him, his, he's got a frowny face. So he's not looking in a way that looks particularly like it's desire. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, his mouth is downturned. And I think this points to one of the underlying themes of both this work and Tara Oka's kind of whole body of work which is really to look at this kind of clash of cultures. Obviously, it's set in Hawaii. So if we're constructing a story around this, it might be that this is a Japanese tourist who has come to Hawaii and is just really surprised with what he sees there. It definitely has a feeling of culture looking upon culture. I think that's like something that's really clear. I'm I'm really intrigued by what the white European looking lady is holding in her left hand. Yeah, so I believe she's also carrying a snorkelling mask that she has removed. I guess what's suggested is they've come from the point of being in the water 
Um, they're coming out of the waves now, and finally they're able to see each other a little more clearly. I think what's really great about the snorkels and the swimsuit, in fact, is that it really brings it much more into the present day. You wouldn't be mistaken with thinking that this was a print that was made hundreds of years ago. So not only is it a clash between cultures that he's depicting, but perhaps a clash between different moments in time. Up in the top right corner, there's like something else, isn't there? Like I thought it might be the tentacles of one of those black fish that are up in the corner. Could you tell us a bit about that? Uh, so yeah, in the top right-hand corner, there's a small crescent shape and you have to look really closely, but there's a much smaller figure of a woman and she has two enormous catfish either side of her. And actually, if you look even closer, there is some dialogue within that little bubble and what it says in Kanji's script, uh, they're saying to her, oh, your head is big, isn't it? And she's exclaiming, me? And then the catfish responds, it's fine with me. Oh, that's so fascinating. So the catfish is having a little chat with her and discussing the size of her head. Yeah, I mean, I wonder what the fish think of the size of their own heads or each other. It's very, very layered. But um, (laughs) do you think that the artist's intent in this image was to make people laugh? I think knowing what I know about his other works, he is an artist who uses humour to bring attention to often really serious social political issues a lot of his works have addressed the relationship between U.S. and Japanese culture and particularly the influence of like U.S. consumer culture in Japan for example he has another series called uh, McDonald Hamburgers Invading Japan and that was about the first McDonald's store in in Tokyo and I think what he's intending to do in many cases is um, use humor to catch people's attention and stimulate debate Um, maybe to have people talking about what's appropriate or not. But I hope it does make people feel a little bit uncomfortable and prompted to laugh a bit because it's it's kind of ludicrous. Katie, do you remember the first time that you saw this image? Yeah, I do remember. I was doing um, research into the collection and particularly trying to understand our representation of artists from the Asia-Pacific region. And so when I came across this, yeah, I did a little inward laugh because it's so, it's just such a strange and conspicuous image. It's so unlike many other works that we have in Tate's collection. But yeah, I did a little laugh, like a little, you know, when you're writing a text message and you were LOL, but you don't really laugh. You kind of laugh a bit inside. So that's what I did. Yeah. Oh, and uh, you described it lovely as like an inward laugh. And I'm just like, oh, have you been to one of my gigs? You sound like an audience member at one oh, of no. my gigs. The Art of Everything I've looked at so far was made in the 20th century. But the origins of comedy as an art form can be traced all the way back to ancient Greece. Humour and irony were used by comic poets and playwrights to influence political opinions. In effect, laughter was weaponised. Our next artist liked to express in some of his drawings his views on alcoholism, sex work and the impact of people of colour on English culture. I'm talking about A Rake's Progress, drawn by William Hogarth in 1735. Here again is Alice Proctor and James Finch. There are various strands of humour in the history of art. One of them is caricature and physical exaggerations, which are often very spiteful. By the 1400s or 1500s, the idea of physical comedy in depicted form was, was very common. Hogarth knew about these caricatures by Leonardo and other Italian artists. And there's actually a Hogarth 
picture called caricatures and characters which is very interesting in this sense because he actually copied these heads by Leonardo and others and besides them he did his own version as if to say these people are just taking the fun out of people by exaggerating their physical features to a ridiculous extent whereas what I'm doing is extracting some kind of essential character from them and one of the things that I think is really remarkable about Hogarth is that he was able to make paintings which make people laugh out loud. And that's one thing that I don't find very often in contemporary art is to find an actual static image which has that kind of effect on you. And it's remarkable to think that something like A Rake's Progress, which was painted and then engraved hundreds of years ago, still can have that kind of visceral and spontaneous effect on an audience. Alice, could you please tell us a bit about Hogarth's A Rake's Progress? The Rake's Progress is probably one of Hogarth's most famous series. The main character is a man called Tom Rakewell, and the story is about his collapse into depravity and debauchery and things like that. So this is the third scene from the series, and it shows Tom in a bar in central London, and it's all about him kind of losing his morals and collapsing into this very weird and decadent way of life. His name is a play on the idea of a rake, the origin of the word rake, meaning someone who's sort of decadent and chaotic and doesn't care and just lives for pleasure, is from the word rake hell, like raising hell. And so his name is Rake Well as a way of just really driving home the point. All of the other characters in the scene are part of this narrative. There are little visual signifiers that tell us that some of them are sex workers, some of them are performers, some of them are basically 18th century strippers. A lot of the women have black uh, stickers on their faces that would be covering the marks of sexually transmitted diseases and that kind of thing. So the whole of the scene is set up to be kind of ridiculous and thrilling, but at the same time giving us a moral message about what's going wrong in Tom's life. Yeah, it does look like a pretty wild night out. Is there things coming out of the mouths of these women that are sat around the table? Am I seeing that? What is that? Um, one of them is spitting at the other one. Um, and so Hogarth's oh. drawn it like this stream of liquid coming out of her mouth. No way. I was like, are they smoking? And that's meant to be the smoke. But that is that is really gross. <laughs> it's It's meant to be really gross. So everyone's in various stages of undress. Everyone's kind of losing track of what they're doing. The woman who is sort of like slightly between the rake's legs is reaching around behind him and passing a watch, presumably his watch that she's just stolen, to her friend. So you get this sense that he's having a great time, but he's also being taken advantage of. Wow. And there's a lot of like plates in this image as well. This feels so hectic. There's so much going on. Could you tell us a bit more about um, some of the objects? So in the background, you've got these portraits around the wall that represent Roman emperors and generals and significant figures. All of the um, good emperors or the ones that are associated with sort of good governance and things like that have their faces ripped out. And the only one who's left is the emperor Nero, who is probably most famous as incredibly corrupt and incredibly decadent as Roman emperors go. Someone is setting a map of the world on fire or trying to. So there's something really unsubtle going on here about the idea that the world is going up in flames and we're all being corrupted. And it's a way of really driving home this idea that there's nothing good or wholesome or kind of clean and healthy about this scene. Yeah, I mean, it's a very surefire way to show your... uh 
political beliefs. It feels very strong, doesn't it? Like, so is Hogarth like religious? Like, it seems like a bit of a prude. Hogarth is really tricky in this sense because there's very little that he does approve of. Something that makes him effective as a satirist is the fact that he pretty much hates everybody. So no matter what your background is, he makes fun of rich people, but he also makes fun of the poor and the working classes. He hates the aristocracy. He hates people that are prudish. He hates people that are decadent. He's really, really misanthropic. He also uses the representation of people of color in a lot of his images as a shorthand for the things that he sees as corrupting English society. So there's really vicious racism in some of these images as well. There's a little bit of that in this print of the Rake's Progress. One of the women in the scene is identifiable as black. Her skin tone is much darker than the other characters. And if you follow her eyeline, she's making eye contact with the ballad singer that's just come in on the right-hand side of the image. So the singer is holding a broadsheet ballad, which is like a popular song sheet, and it's called The Black Joke. So The Black Joke was a ballad that was a sexual pun. It's a kind of grotesque and really ribald song about vaginas and the idea of women as kind of laughing at men and dangerous. And it's all very like paranoid sexuality kind of stuff. But it's also got this racist undertone and frankly overtone to it as well. Oof. At first I thought he was just grumpy, but it turns out he's significantly more uh, problematic and layered than that. Um, Anything from you, James? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with everything that Alice has said. And in relation to humour in art generally, what we think of when we think of humour in art is its context and its culture specific. And so I think the more that we can expand that through having access to work produced by different communities, then, you know, the better and the richer our sense of this subject will be. By making this podcast, I've discovered that art incorporates humour in various ways. From a literal joke, a parody, a ridiculous image, to something scandalous or absurd. One of the big things we talk about in stand-up comedy is that fine line, that tension that creates the release of laughter. And the root is often the things that are difficult to talk about in society. And I guess that's one of the brilliant uses of humour. It allows us that space and opportunity to say, oh yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that. So next time you feel like laughing in a gallery, it's not because you're a bit awkward, it's because you get it. Well, that's my story anyway, and I'm sticking to it. You've been listening to Tate's podcast, The Art Of, with me, Charlie George. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or check out previous episodes from the series which explore the art of failure, dreaming and even love. To find out more about the artworks we've discussed, visit Tate's website. Massive thanks to all our contributors. The Art of Comedy was produced, edited and mixed by Phil Brown, with research by Deborah Sharinde. The exec producer was Crystal Genesis, and it was a start studio production for Tate. The Art of Comedy.